don't give it like a the podcast platform of the Phenomenalist by Leopold Lambert. Today, islandization of military bases. The case of Diego Garcia Island with Greg Barton. Hello everyone. Today my guest is uh, Greg Barton, who is a researcher and creator in uh, New York, and he just finished uh, the uh, what's called the CCTP, CCCP, sorry, uh, uh, program in uh, Columbia University, which is in uh, in relation to the School of Architecture here in in, uh, in Columbia University, where we actually happen to record this podcast. Uh, and uh, we're going to see in a minute uh, what this program is about. But uh, before all, uh, hello, Greg. Hey. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I mean, maybe just to to be able to um, start this conversation with uh, the context in which uh, your research about the, the this uh, very particular island uh, called Diego Garcia, uh, uh, this research. Uh, that you've been doing in this, in this uh, specific program. Maybe you can uh, begin by introducing this program for us and, uh, and we'll take it from there. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, so the Critical Curatorial and Conceptual Practices in Architecture program at Columbia School of Architecture um, is fairly recent, started about five years ago, and it's focused on the modes of dissemination of architectural uh, production. So everything from publications to exhibitions. And the focus of the program is on uh, perhaps inventing new modes of architectural production criticism. And in the second year, the thesis year of the program, you have that time to investigate a topic of your choice and in a format or medium of your choice. I completed my thesis on this island, Diego Garcia, um, in the form of uh, cartography. Mm -hmm. Well, and we're going to talk about that uh, throughout this conversation. And maybe I should say as well that um, you're actually the second guest of Archipelago who were part of this program. But uh, back then, we, we had not really explained explain it uh, thoroughly, but um, uh, the first podcast you can listen to uh, was with uh, uh, Nina Kolobrapping, um, and, uh, and there will be actually more uh, people from this program because there's, there's always some very interesting research uh, being made here. But so let's jump right into your own research um, about uh, this island of Diego Garcia, as, uh, which is part of the Chagos Archipelago in the, in the Indian Ocean, and that uh, hosts a very uh, secretive uh, UK and US military bases that you've been, uh, you've been looking at uh, under the, um, through, through various approaches of uh, legal, legal, theoretical, uh, approaches and, and uh, consideration for territory. So we, we're going to 
we're gonna and, and cartography as you mentioned so we're gonna we're gonna talk about all that today and uh, but probably the best thing to do to introduce uh, this research is maybe to begin by a, a sort of historical introduction of of this very peculiar island that uh, I personally never heard of uh, before you told me about it I don't know I don't know for other people but uh, probably it's it's fair to say that it's a relatively unknown uh, of territory and that has very special characteristic uh, that share uh, that share um, uh, similarities with uh, with uh, a place like Guantanamo Bay right now. So uh, we're going to try to to uh, expose uh, all that through through your work. But so yeah, as I, as I was mentioning earlier, let's let's maybe begin by by some uh, historical context, if you don't mind. Well, so the, the island's history is um, quite storied, quite complex, and one of power, sovereignty, and political, military uh, regimes and technologies. Um, the island itself is part of the Chagos Archipelago, as I mentioned, and it's a thin coral atoll, about 25 kilometers long and 5 kilometers wide. So it's approximately the size of Washington, D.C. However, it is a very thin uh, atoll with a very large lagoon. So the island itself only has a surface area of about 30 square kilometers. It rests a little bit above uh, sea level. And, um, and so since the 18th century... Um, when France and Britain began surveying and fighting over uh, these islands, um, its importance and strategic location, um, it's, yeah, I should mention, it's pretty much in the center of the Indian Ocean, uh, south of the Maldives, mm -hmm. and... So somewhere in between Madagascar and Australia, it's, it's, it's equidistant from pretty much, yeah, Australia, South Asia, um, kind of Eastern Africa, mm. um, the Middle East. Um, but so... so it's, it's a, we can already see how it, it is a quite strategical situation within the Indian Ocean, which uh, I suppose you will, you will introduce as a... As their primary per, uh, primary reason that a country like the U.S. might be interested in it, right? The interest of the U.S. Um, began in the late '50s um, by someone named Stu Barber, who, as part of this uh, think tank um, called Long Range Objectives Group, Op 93, um, they developed this idea of what they called the strategic island which was a remote piece of uninhabited or lightly populated strategic territory to be acquired for the purposes of a military base that would kind of you know, act in supporting communications or refueling or supplying um, uh, kind of troops and deploying uh, technologies. And so unlike bases in other nations, which the U.S. has plenty of, um, they can be subject to denied access by the host state, which has happened numerous times, or challenged by local protest. 
And so the U.S. wanted reliable staging areas um, for their operations. So at the time, many former colonies uh, were gaining independence, and this think tank, Op 93, produced a report saying that the U.S. should seek to stockpile some of these island assets um, at this critical moment um, in order to elaborate their kind of capabilities and their infrastructure. Um, Diego Garcia, as part of Chagos, is part of another country, Mauritius, and as part of the U.S.-U.K. schemes um, to acquire this island, the local population of Diego Garcia um, was forcibly evicted in the late 60s and early 70s, mostly to Mauritius and the Seychelles. And this, of course, counter to UN uh, resolutions that prohibit the violation of the territorial integrity of a country or colony. And so in the decolonization process, when Mauritius became a sovereign state, uh, the Chagos Archipelago was detached by the British and with some other islands kind of comprising a new entity called the British Indian Ocean Territories, so BIOT. Which are, which are still under British sovereignty currently, right? Yes. yes, and this is accomplished through an archaic UK provision, a royal decree um, called an order and council, which is similar to uh, an executive order mm. in the US so that uh, it's not subject to, say, congressional or parliamentary oversight. The island as kind of, uh, again, planned and built up um, was always kind of foreseen to be available to the U.S. and it has been leased to the U.S. Navy uh, for a facility. Um, And so that was established in the Cold War and was approved as an austere communications facility. Um, So kind of radio signaling and uh, communications among their naval network um, but it has only grown in importance ever since. Mm-hmm. And maybe grown in secrecy as well? Yes. yes. Uh, unfortunately, um, civilians generally aren't allowed to visit the island, and there's not any sort of kind of international or non governmental uh, observers. So it exists as this um, legal black hole mm-hmm. of sorts. Well, well, I'm very glad you just said that because it, it brings us back to a conversation, a recent conversation I had with uh, uh, Naomi Peck about um, uh, the, the camp, the American-created camp as a site of rightlessness, right, rightless subjects, sorry. And um, 
and she was actually going against the idea that something like Guantanamo was a, a legal black hole, but uh, almost, and obviously we understand what legal black holes means, is like there, there's a sort of uh, ambiguity that allows practices to be, uh, to be done in a, which would not be possible, like, like torture or, or, or uh, uh, incarceration following a, a kidnapping of, of um, uh, in the case of Guantanamo, of, of people in uh, wherever that might be, I mean, in Pakistan, in Afghanistan, and, uh, in many other places. Um, but the, the argument that uh, Naomi was making, which I think is, is, is very interesting, is that it's, it's quite not a legal black hole. On, on the, one, one could argue that there's, there's actually more presence of the law in those exceptional territories than, um, than in, in the regular territory, so to speak. So uh, I suppose I, I would like to bring you in this part of this research that you've been doing in, in, the, in the legal, legal aspect of, uh, of, the, of, the, um, of this island of Diego Garcia and, and how, how precisely there is uh, an active construction, an active legal construction, a legal production to actually make uh, this site uh, available for uh, to be called to be retrospectively called a legal black hole but uh, I don't know I'd like to hear you about it yeah the the ambiguity that you mentioned is this is where you kind of see its devastating effects that a space that so territory is usually defined as a geographical area that has been acquired by a state, but that is not a full participant or part thereof. And so the way a government might go about acquiring and constructing a territory in order to produce a structural loophole or operational space to commit, say, an act of torture um, involves a highly specialized series of kind of particular fine-tunings um, in a legislative sense. And <clears throat> the, the role that language plays within this process, both its presence in terms of declaring or uh, prescribing but also in its absence. And so the interpretation of, say, a, uh, a memo, a UN resolution, uh, an executive order, that the ways in which these are interpreted or written uh, can also help in producing this extra legal space. Well, so I mean, there, we've we've been studying quite uh, precisely how a, a space like the Camp Delta in Guantanamo Bay has been operating as a as a legal as a legal level, and to to quote to quote Naomi Peck again, uh, how 
how there had been a need for what she calls a, a legal fiction to exist to make this, uh, to make this uh, camp uh, operational. But could you maybe tell us more specifically in the case of Diego Garcia, a designer, um, what, what has been this work being done to, uh, to actually operate? And I suppose that part, part, of, part of the complexity of it might be that uh, if the sovereignty is British, the, 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 the US military is involved as well. So I suppose that's, that's already two conflicting, I mean, two allied yet conflicting sovereignties on the same side, so could you maybe unfold that for us? Yeah, <clears throat> so fiction is a pretty apt way of perhaps approaching this, a very common phrase within um, kind of discourse around the island often cites uh, this kind of sentiment, maintaining the fiction, quote unquote, which is the original claim that there were no permanent inhabitants on the island. So that in these processes in the decolonization um, era, these permanent inhabitants, these islanders were kind of semantically transmutated into kind of contract labor or migrant labor, and that they were uh, resignified um, so that the UK could kind of dodge obligations to the UN in terms of reporting on colonized peoples. And so by inventing the fiction that, you know, there were no inhabitants uh, or that they were kind of transient workers uh, perpetuated and allowed for this. Um, I mean, language plays such an important role. We are talking about acts of torture, but again, when something like torture gets kind of rebranded as enhanced interrogation and somehow becomes legal or not in violation of Geneva Conventions. Um, but Diego Garcia itself, in terms of, say, jurisdiction, is quite schizophrenic in that it's enmeshed in um, various legal claims um, and at various scales. So between, uh, say, the Chagos refugees wanting to uh, return uh, to their homes versus Mauritius, a state claiming uh, the archipelago to be part of their country, that a lot of these kind of legal uh, struggles are played out in um, kind of national, international uh, venues and encasements, and that you have these different legalities, and at one point the island might be part of, you know, UK law. In another part, it you know may not. Um, and so, what about the U.S.? The U.S. has retained a surprising amount of essentially plausible deniability in a lot of uh, the incidents 
related to the island um, where David Garcia just falls into the kind of I would say black site network that the U.S. runs and considers outside of uh, of jurisdiction in a lot of cases. Um, and so this this military bases had had been originally built in the context of the Cold War uh, at a particularly uh, uh, intense moment of the Cold War. But um, uh, I, I don't know what happened to it in the 90s, but I mean, uh, I, since for the, from what I understand from the last 13 years now, it's been very much involved uh, within their, the, this context of what's, what's been called the war and terror. And, uh, and, uh, and um, so maybe I'd like to hear from you about, about it and how we went from uh, what you were describing I mean, what might have been already quite secretive, but uh, what you were describing as a as a sort of uh, uh, facilitating geography for uh, all the operations that could happen from the U.S. and British uh, military uh, within their Indian Ocean to uh, one of those uh, camps that uh, Naomi Peck is describing. Uh, uh, where where there is um, a sort of reconfiguration of, of, of things and, and probably added secrecy in, in, in this case. But, um, uh, yeah, could you describe that for us, please? It's, it's certainly a utility um, and a very operative uh, space. Um, in the 90s, it was used to launch... The initial attacks in Iraq and then in the 2000s in Iraq again and Afghanistan and so that's where the majority of the airstrikes originate um, and Diego Garcia's role as a node within this obviously much larger network of US kind of military infrastructure um it's one of the more significant nodes in terms of supplying and placing. It's, I mean, it's a logistics uh, fulcrum of sorts in terms of placing assets in war theaters. And so, I mean, for this reason, uh, you know, one study looking at supply chains of the military has written about the island in terms of uh, not only topography but topology and that it becomes this uh, topological space in this flexible network and that the U.S. at this point has over 1,000 bases in over 50 countries and so that's a great deal of architecture uh, and the way in which this infrastructure is kind of encrusting the planet is able to adjust and, uh, and respond to really anything on the planet 
And so that is where territory of this island reaches a global scale. So that previously during the Cold War, when it was ballistic missiles that each have a certain radius, and you know, technologically this is always getting greater, um, but that these sorts of limits yeah, now find their apogee in B-2 stealth bombers that can reach any point on the globe uh, from Diego Garcia. Mm. Well, so, <clears throat> sorry. We, um, uh, so far we've been approaching uh, uh, the operations of uh, this island and uh, orchestrated from this island at a historical and legal level, but uh, I think there is another approach you took within your research uh, that uh, what you were discovering about throughout this research was leading you to question the notion of territory. And uh, again, if I make bridges with other conversations we've been having, I think uh, the one the one I've been having with uh, Stuart Hilden who's eminently um, uh, interested in this concept of territory in his, his last book it's called The Birth of Territory uh, and, and uh, tried to, trying to find a sort of uh, uh, what we would call an archaeology of, of, uh, of uh, or genealogy of, of, uh, of uh, territory but so could you could you maybe tell us a little bit more on yourself how uh, this notion of territory was engaged and maybe rethought through your research? Yeah, so territory as an object of study has certainly gained much more uh, scrutiny in the last few decades. You know, the work of Eldon, uh, Saskia Sassum, uh, Peter Taylor, um, and so from architecture to, uh, to political science to geography, more and more the issue of space has grown in its importance in readings of global processes. So that uh, as geographer uh, Eric Swingadu notes, most accounts of global processes, like capitalism, for instance, tend to downplay the element of space versus, uh, say, history. Um, and, and obviously time. And that generally space is construed as a passive context or setting for these other processes. And uh, more recently, a lot of the research on territory has focused on biopolitical management um, coming out of kind of Foucault and Agamben. And more recently in, uh, in architecture with, say, landscape urbanism, there's been a trend towards 
designing systems and managing ecologies and these indeterminate systems. And so what in my project was working on uh, through mapping, really, was looking at a lot of these non-human territories, you know, communication distances, missile distances I mentioned, um, or legal kind of jurisdiction encasements and trying to show that one island is never a single island and that you know a territory is always multiple um, a territory is kind of set of capabilities so a territory can do certain things uh, and that um, it's kind of relationships to other geographies and other territories uh, is certainly a key factor so that again if we think about the military base network of the United States um Islands have always played a big role in this infrastructure. And these days, um, the U.S. military has been pursuing what, uh, what David Vine, who is the author of one of the best sources on Diego Garcia, this book called Island of Shame, um, what David Vine has been recently writing about is this idea of of the lily pad where the U.S. government is touching down very lightly in this network and that you're able to shift very easily and with a light footprint. Um, and I mean, more and more war is becoming islandized to a certain extent. Yeah. Uh, would it be fair to? I'm, I'm trying to. Uh, I'm trying to maybe uh, uh, retake what you just said and, and put it in in other words to be sure that we we all understand uh, your approach. Would Would that be fair to say that you you affirm that when it comes to an island like Diego Garcia, the territory we consider is as much uh, this. Coral at all uh, itself, like what we would usually look at and look at a map of Diego Garcia and say, okay, this is the territory of Diego Garcia. So, would it be fair to say that this territory, in your approach, is as defining for Diego Garcia, if not maybe even less than, let's say, the various uh, the various circle of reachability for, let's say, a given rocket launch from, launch from this, uh, or plane, la an aircraft launched by this, uh, this island. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's... That we might consider the island much more in terms of what it can do than perhaps what it is. Mm -hmm. And so, so a, a very important part of your, of your thesis uh, was consisted in, uh, as you announced earlier, consisted in this cartographic uh, assignment uh, that you that you gave yourself, and uh, and that we will definitely uh, associate to this conversation so that uh, everyone understands uh, well what this is about. 
that you could you explain to us uh, uh, maybe even uh, considering that the listeners might have access to it in front of them while you describing it but uh, could you yeah could you tell us what you were trying to achieve within this uh, cartographical approach to, to the problem yeah certainly at the outset I decided to investigate territory through two channels. And so this bimodal reading was based on the fact that I saw territory as being constructed by, on the one hand, language, and on the other hand, uh, kind of lines, we could say. They have delineation and then designation and that territory was produced through these two components. And so a large part of this project was making various maps of the island, but again, reflexively trying... Cartography has been problematized many times over, and we know that the... paradox of the map and the territory has also been explored by many. Um, What I was trying to test was how through mapping these new ideas of territory might arise. And so that was certainly the case with uh, mapping uh, ballistic missile distances and Uh, radii and that um, and that through map making I was forced to consider all the constituent parts of that process and of creating a map as a kind of vehicle uh, to communicate information about this island And so these experiments range from uh, non-mercator projections of the island that, you know, if we change the way in which we project the world, then reading this map might show you new relationships or might foreground a particular aspect of the island. And uh, I built an online... Uh, atlas of sorts um, where many of the claims that I was investigating around territory, these issues of uh, it being multiscalar or relational were then recast as uh, kind of conceptual gambits in terms of utilitarian aspects of a digital interactive map, like Google Maps, for instance. And so things like panning or zooming um, or layers would allow a certain interactivity and a certain uh, possibility that some of the large folio uh, maps that I was making didn't. Um, One hopes also that a website would perhaps be more readily available to a larger 
population. Um, I, I should have may, I should have maybe uh, almost interrupted you when you when you talked about that to, to ask you to, to tell us more about it. But you, you mentioned that um, cartography is highly problematic and has been has been uh, critiqued many times. Uh, but maybe we went a little bit too too fast on that because. Um, I think uh, I think it's not necessarily obvious, and and precisely for this reason, it is highly problematic because it's a map. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, once again, that uh, it's rare. I do so many bridges uh, with other conversations, but uh, a conversation I had with Lucia Halon Oyarsun about about mapping was precisely talking about that and how we tend to have a very strange. Uh, imaginary of the map as being a tool of objectivity when actually we should embrace the ethical subjectivity of the map. But uh, I, I'm not quite sure whether uh, the problematic aspect of the map we're referring specifically to this or to other issues. I'd, I'd love to hear you about it. And maybe in relation to your own exercise, what, what, how, did you, how did you deal with this problem, problematic aspect? Well, indeed, maps can be hegemonic projections of power. They can be tools of resistance that this authorial ethics that you're talking about or responsibility um, was certainly a large part of this process. And for me... Cartography became a necessary but insufficient uh, mode of operating in that you would reach certain limits of the map um, in its ability to represent certain things. And so that any map uh, has three elements, which is the scale, the projection, and the symbolization. And... Each of these uh, forms of representation are subject uh, to distortion, uh, for good or bad, and um, and for me the the digital atlas was a way to provide multiple readings, multiple uh, forms of evidence. Um, and documents and various media in order to tell this story. Well, Greg, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to talk with me about uh, this uh, very interesting research. And uh, maybe I can hope that one day I will be the, will made, be made the object of, her, of a publication. Who knows? Thank you. Thank you.